It is really good to be here. Happy New Year. I don't know if I did not stay up till midnight. Uh, and I admire the people who have the fortitude to do so. Uh, but I'm an old soul at heart, so I didn't even hear the fireworks. Um, but it is my pleasure to be uh, reading and preaching from God's Word today together with you. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Matthew 2, it's up on the screen, I'm sure, I think, I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I, for me, the practice of, of opening and reading together is something I, uh, it prepares my heart for what is to come. And so, also, if you're willing to and able to, if you would stand for God's reading, uh, I would really appreciate it. Um, I, I find the need to slow down as we approach God's word. Uh, and so, if you would do that with me, I appreciate it. Uh, so, this is come from Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from there what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return the Herod, they departed to their country, their own country, by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew or departed to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. 
that he would be called a Nazarene. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would speak to your people despite the inability of the preacher. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As was mentioned, I am from Colombia. I Actually, I was, many of you know, I was actually born and raised in Colombia as well. Uh, and when a, a certain time came, I told God that I was, I really wanted, I felt called to be a missionary. And I said, God, I'll be a missionary anywhere but Colombia. God does have a sense of humor. Uh, and yet, I think uh, oftentimes, we, when we think about missionaries, we have this concept of, of the kind of person a pastor is or a missionary is. Uh, and yet, I think the calling of a missionary is no different than the calling of every other Christian. It's just oftentimes they're called to do it in another place. Uh, regardless of our place, the daily task of a Christian is to apply God's word to daily situations. Uh, and the Shorter Catechism, the third Shorter Catechism, talks about when we examine God's Word, we should seek it to understand who God is and how we should live. One of the things I want us to do with this passage is read it through eyes of some of a place that may seem to some of you really far away. I want us to read it through the lens of the eyes of someone from Latin America, and specifically from Colombia. Uh, and the reason I think this is helpful, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about how the eye cannot say to the ear, I don't need you, right? Uh, there are church services happening all around the world right now. Like we're just one small piece of this body of Christ that's worshiping and glorifying God. Uh, and one of the things I want to invite us to is to read this passage alongside God's people somewhere else who have a, something that may feel like a very different reality, and yet I think it is very applicable to us. Colombia is a place that has been at war uh, for the last 70 years. So uh, there are very few people that remember a time before the war. Uh, most people hear the word Colombia and they think of the Netflix shows Narcos or they think of, you know, it's uh, oftentimes Colombia has the bad guy, right? Uh, some cartel guy that's the main bad guy in a movie. Uh, and that's what oftentimes comes to our mind when we hear of Colombia. Uh, the reality of the violence of this war, of the drug trade, has been that six million people have been internally displaced. What does that mean? That means that six million people at some point in their life had to pack everything up and flee in the middle of the night with a backpack, whatever they could carry. There was no U-Haul trucks. <laughs> uh, they had to leave with whatever they could carry. And they couldn't go back. And they had to do it because of violence. And so this is the reality in which many Colombians, but especially many pastors, when they read scripture, when they, uh, they are shepherding and walking alongside people who have done this oftentimes more than once. I actually met a guy who'd done it five separate times. Okay. And so we work in a seminary, uh, and we, we, we help train pastors and leaders, but one of the things that we are called to do, I think, there, is try to help these leaders think, how can we shepherd and teach and guide pastors in which this is the constant reality. The, the, the future is oftentimes uncertain. And I think this passage in particular, Matthew 2, speaks to them. And I read this passage alongside some Colombians, and I learned much from them. So what we're going to look at today here in Matthew 2, and feel free to keep your Bibles open. I'd actually be encouraged if you would. Uh, there are three kinds of trips. 
uh, that happen here. There's a voluntary trip, then there's a trip caused by violence, and then there's a trip caused by fear. The first trip is in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and this is the first trip of the Magi. It's a voluntary trip. The Magi come from the east. We are very familiar with the story. They follow the star, and there's this bad guy, Herod, who calls the nerds from the library to ask, where is Jesus to be born? I can say that. I'm one of the nerds, right? Uh, and so the, the, they come and they tell him, well, the, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. And they point to the book of Micah. If you want to turn over to Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Micah was a person who uh, was prophesying in Israel before the Assyrian exile. So right before Israel has to go off, right before they are displaced, right before they're sent away from their homes, he speaks against the corruption and the leadership. And his prophecy is actually one of the things that the Lord uses to bring the reforms of Hezekiah. So this is a key time, and this is a key prophecy. So it's not only about the place, it's also about the transformation. So if you look at Micah 5.2, it says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And jump down to verse 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and he shall dwell securely. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The prophecy, yes, was that he was coming from Bethlehem, but it was also what this prophet, what this Christ, what this Messiah would do. Uh, It's a prophecy about God shepherding his flock, and to some extent it did happen in these days. In the days of Micah, uh, the the nation returned back to the Lord, and they were saved from the Assyrians in that moment, but then they returned to their idolatry, and so they were sent off into exile. But this prophecy was of a day when there would be a lasting kingdom, but they didn't realize it was an everlasting kingdom. And Matthew and even these scribes and priests realize that it's a prophecy for the Christ. And so, uh, what do the, the, the Magi do? They come from the east to Jerusalem to Bethlehem to this house. The text moves from place to place to place, and then it pauses and it stops at a person. They come to see the child. And look at verse 10. Look at what happens there. It says, They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Now, this is a beautiful moment. Up until this point, it's been chaos. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 is meant to highlight chaos. There are women that are mentioned, but it's sort of uh, embarrassing women. It, It talks about Tamar. It talks about Ruth the Moabite, in case you'd forgotten. It doesn't, when it mentions Bathsheba, it doesn't use her name. It says, the woman who was Uriah's wife. And it's meant to highlight these people that had really difficult cultural circumstances. And then you have Mary. She's a single, pregnant woman. And yet, among the genealogy, God had used and been with, God with us, Emmanuel, with these people. And then later on in Matthew chapter 1, you have Joseph, who's about to leave Mary. And there's the chaos and the tension and the fear there. Uh, up until this point, and then they have to, uh, Luke tells us about the census, and so they have to go to Beth, and so we have this constant chaos until we come to this moment, and they're rejoicing exceedingly with great joy, and they worship. Up until this point, they've talked about worship. Here, it happens. 
This is the first time in the book of Matthew that it happens. And, it, and they worship. And I think that's why many nativities pause and stay in this moment. In this, they they kind of, they, they show this, that it, this, this beautiful, yeah, this, this brief second of respite, of peace. But what happens next? In verse 12, it talks about how the Magi are going back to their, they're about to leave, but the angel appears and tells them that they should depart by another route. And that word that's depart is going to be used twice more in this passage. Uh, It's used of the Magi there, of the voluntary trip, but again, for the second trip, it's going to be used. Uh, And this second trip is a trip that's caused by violence. Look at verses 13 to 18 with me. Uh, Here you have, again, an angel appears in a dream. An angel has appeared in Matthew 1.20. Here it appears again. An angel appears to Joseph. Uh, and tells him to flee. It's an imperative. You have to go. Get out of here. And it's, 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 it's an encouragement towards chaotic action. And I've, I've thought about, it's, it's hard to describe what this would look like for us. The, the, the best example I can think of here in the States is uh, when I was, eight, uh, I was actually 19, I was in a motorcycle accident. And I was fine, or I thought I was fine. Uh, but I was taken to the, to the hospital in an ambulance, uh, and when I was there, they asked me who I wanted to call. But I knew my dad wasn't home. My mom was, but my dad wasn't, so I didn't call. I waited until my, I knew my dad was coming in on a flight that day, and I waited until my dad came home. Why? I knew I could tell my dad, and that he would, I wanted someone to be there with my mom when I called. Because if not, you know, I, I know, I knew my mom's reaction would be one towards chaotic action. <laughs> Uh, I love my mother, uh, but I knew that it would, it would bring fear and uncertainty, and for her to do that by herself, if I could just hit pause on that and wait until my dad was home, that was the right thing to do. And yet, in this moment, he doesn't have that pause. Joseph must act now. He must travel with a newborn through the desert. And where does he go? And, and why is he going? It's because they are seeking to kill him, it says in verse 13. And it says that he does. He rises and takes the child. But where do they go? They go on this middle-of-the-night trip, and they go to Egypt. Now, if you remember, in the mind of, of someone from Judea, Egypt was not a vacation spot to go check out the pyramids, right? Uh, this was a place that had enslaved their ancestors, for over 300 years. How can this be the safest place to go? How can, be the, how can this be the right place to go? And yet it is. And they escape to Egypt. This trip, and the text here says that they departed to Egypt. Same verb that's used of the Magi. Totally different trip. Totally different trip. The Magi are just going by another route. They're still going home. Uh, here it's a fleeing. It's 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 a uh, um, yeah, it's a fleeing, and it, here uh, Matthew points to two Old Testament texts. The first one is Hosea one one that recalls this escape from from Exodus when Israel was a child. I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's the text. The more they were called, the more they went away. Now Hosea is a a text that's often famous for the metaphor. Hosea had to marry um, he had to marry a woman who of, was of low repute. Uh, and had to remain faithful to her, though she did not remain faithful. And uh, throughout the book of Hosea, it's a constant reminder that the Lord is faithful even when his people are not. And that is the, the, the imagery that is used. But it's also this imagery of, though I brought you out of slavery, the more they called, the more they went away. 
is what this text reminds us of. Again, and as a result, they are sent into exile. This highlights the difficulty of Israel's relationship with Exodus. This is the last place you would want to go. But the second text that Matthew points to is Jeremiah 31. And if you, if you want to, go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 31. Verse, starting from verse 15 is where the text is, but I'm going to start an actual in verse 10. And this is what it says. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him, once again the metaphor of a shepherd, as a shepherd keeps his flock. Jump to verse 13. Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them. I will give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest's abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. There's so much hope in those verses. And then verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But look what it says then. Thus says the Lord, keep your voices from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. This is a text of people who are taken from their homeland, but God is promising that they will return. In the days of Jeremiah, the weeping was because their children had been taken into exile. They had been displaced. But here, Matthew applies this text, not to those who had to leave, but to those whose children were killed. And yet this hope stands. This hope remains. And yet I often wonder, when I, when I think about this text, uh, what does Jesus do when they get to Egypt? What does Joseph, what do Joseph and Mary do? Do you tell people why you're there? Or not? I mean, does Herod have ears everywhere? Are you constantly afraid of that? Do you settle down? Do you learn the language? Do you make friends? Do, how was, how do you tell your son the story of why you had to move to Egypt? Do you tell him about the other two-year-olds? I mean, there's so much in this text that makes you wonder what they carried. That second trip really rings true with a lot of Colombians when they read this. The fear, the anxiety, the worry about going back, but if you ask them where they are from, they will pause and be unsure of whether they should tell you or not. And yet, there's a third trip, and this third trip, I had not noticed until I read this with some of my students. Uh, this third trip is in verses 19 to 23. And this is the trip to Nazareth. And this one is one that's caused by fear. Again, an angel appears in verse 19. At this point, Joseph might be sick of the angel saying, hey, go to somebody else. Every time you show up, something goes wrong, right? Uh, and then verse 20 and 21, again, it's the same rise and take. It's this immediacy. But look what it says. For those who seek the life of the child are dead. There's irony here. The, the very powerful king who wanted to kill a helpless infant, yeah, he's dead. That's how verse 19 starts. But when Herod died, 
the child outlived the one who was trying to murder him. And so they are told to come to the land of Judea. But there's still fear, and there's a warning in verse 22, which suggests that maybe they were thinking about going back to Bethlehem. They were going to go to Judea. That's where Joseph's you know, ancestry was from. And so are they going to go there? And so, but it very clearly states that he did not settle in Judea for fear. And so what does he do? He goes to Nazareth. Nazareth was not at the top of their list. When they were making their choices of where to move, Nazareth was not among the most uh, impressive places to go. In fact, in John, in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 46, there's, a, there's Nathaniel who's from Bethsaida. And if you sit down and you look at a map, Bethsaida is actually just next to Nazareth. It's up next to the Sea of Galilee. They're right next to each other. And <laughs> what Nathaniel says, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was sort of the armpit of the country, shall we say. And yet, and, and, and not only so, it's never mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth was not an important place. But that's where they go. And according to this text, it was very purposeful. That text that we often say from Isaiah chapter 9, where uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Right before that, if you look at verses 1 and 2, it talks about Nephtali and Galilee being the people who have seen a great light, for on them a light has shone. There was a beautiful fulfillment in him being in Nazareth, and yet it wasn't an ideal place to go. And the reason they went there is out of fear. Don't miss that. Out of fear. A third trip. They never, they didn't get to go back. These, later, these two later trips of Jesus show that Christ had to flee and couldn't return to his own town. One, to fulfill the prophecy. Constantly, it's pointing to the Old Testament. But two, to share in our experience. There's a church father that says that what was assumed was redeemed. What was assumed was redeemed. One of the things I teach is Christology. Uh, and one of the things that we think through and look in Scripture is how Christ entered our suffering. He didn't have to, but he did it in order to become a person. Why? Because part of the human experience is to suffer. So Christ was hungry. He got sleepy. God doesn't get sleepy. Christ got sleepy, right? He was tempted, though without sin. He suffered and he redeemed in, in, in our devotional the other day, we were talking about Christ's baptism. He, was, he received the baptism for the forgiveness of sins. He'd never sinned. But in his baptism, the baptism that we experience is redeemed. It's made effectual through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he experiences these things that we must experience as humans, as Christians, in order to redeem them. And these passages can be read Christologically of a Christ who experienced displacement. He experienced ha knowing what it's like to run away. But how did he redeem it? And I'd, Colombians read this passage this way, but they're not the first ones. Now I'm going to put my nerd glasses on. Uh, Matthew 2 was also read this way by a man named Athanasius. Uh, Athanasius was a man who lived in the 4th century, and we're about to sing uh, a song, and the second verse uh, highlights something that is affirmed in the Nicene Creed, that we truly, truly believe that Jesus is God. There was not a time before which God, Jesus, did not exist. Christ, the Word, has always existed. And uh, 
Athanasius stood up for this position, claiming that Jesus actually was God. And as a result, he got kicked out of his church five times. The government sent him into exile for a total of 16 years because he affirmed that Jesus was God. And uh, there is a whole group of, of other fellow nerds that think about exile as displacement. This idea of being forced from your home is not too different from, uh, he was forced out of, uh, it was forced migration due to politics or due to violence. And so during his third exile, during this third time that he was sent far, far away, uh, he writes an apology. He writes an explanation for why he had to run away. Now, for most of us, we don't feel like he should feel like he needs to write this. Just saying, hey, they were trying to kill me is sufficient, right? Uh, and yet, in that time, he feels like he needs to explain why he had to run away. And he says, number one, it's because people are accusing me of being a coward. Now, I'm not a coward, so maybe there's some of that. Uh, but there was also this other piece. They were accusing him of having a lack of faith. Just before this, there had been a number of people who stood up for their faith and died for it. The word testimony in Greek is martureo, which is, that's where the word martyr comes from. It's somebody who stood up. A martyr was someone who stood up and gave testimony to their faith unto death. So the question was, Athanasius, why didn't you do the same thing? These other people did it. Why don't you do it? So he writes an apology explaining why he, one, was either sent into exile or others, other times that he fled. And here's what he says. First of all, one of the parts that he includes is he tells the stories of others. He tells the stories of others who were killed for their faith. And he says, part of the reason I was kept alive was so that I could tell their stories. But two, he also does two kinds of exegesis. One of these I'll call normative exegesis. There's times that the Bible tells us what to do. Uh, and so he shows, for example, in Exodus 21, 12, it says that if someone is trying to kill you, there are cities of refuge. You should run away to these cities, and there no one can kill you. So in the Old Testament, you have God telling his people, if someone is trying to kill you, you should run away. But also Jesus himself tells the disciples to flee when they are persecuted in Matthew 5, 23, and then in Matthew 24, 15. So there are times that Christ says that if someone is persecuting you, you can and should run away if you are able to. But he also uses exemplary exegesis. So he uses the life of somebody honorable and admirable to show you should live this way. And for example, Elijah runs away from Ahab and Jezebel when they're, they're, someone, when they're seeking to kill them. But he also points to Matthew 2 when Christ had to flee. He points to this passage. And it leads him to this conclusion. I think it's fascinating. The word himself, Jesus became a human for our sakes and considered himself worthy or considered it right or considered it honorable, considered it just to hide when he was persecuted and chased, just as we have to do, and also when he was persecuted to flee and to avoid the plans of his enemies, for it was appropriate and right, as he did with hunger and thirst and suffering, to also have to hide and flee to show that he had truly taken our flesh and made himself a person. And so, and then he goes into exegesis of Matthew 2. For him, he looks at this, he sees a Christ who took on a multitude of human experiences. And I want you to pause and just contemplate with me for a moment. The word who spoke everything into existence had to learn how to talk. He did not cease to be God, but he became a baby and then a toddler that had to learn how to talk. 
Because that's part of the human process. Or, according to Colossians and Hebrews, uh, everything is sustained by the word of his power, was sustained or held in a cattle feeder. We use the word manger, and it feels clean. If you, if you ever fed, fed cattle, you know they're not clean. But he sustains the world, but was sustained in this trough. He was tempted, but without sin. I mean, this is what it is to be human. And for Athanasius, to have to flee is what it is to be human. In the United States, we are privileged to have religious freedom, and we live in a time and in a place where we have not had to flee for what we believe, many of us. But the reality of many Christians around the world at many stages of history has been that they have had to flee. And he sees Christ walking with them. And in his exegesis in Matthew 2, he says, Jesus took, <laughs> I love this, Jesus told the angel to warn Joseph, which, I mean, for Christ, who took our suffering, did not cease to be God, who holds the universe together, but he condescended to be born and to flee. And that's the mystery of this hypostatic union. That's the fancy term for it. He did not cease to be God, but he became a man. He became a human. In the life of Athanasius, Matthew 2 gave him solace to know that the God of the universe knew how he felt, and he walks with those he flees. And when we pray, he understands. And so how does God's word help Colombians understand who God is and how they should live? Matthew 2 provides pastors, leaders, and Christians this concept of God with us when they pray. But it's more than that. It's even more than that. Because, as I mentioned before, what, God, what Christ assumes, he redeems. I also think that he redeems their concept of home. Now, this, is, they, this can be taken a dozen different directions, but the one that's I've noticed in conversations with some students is that the, the word home brings all sorts of anguish. <laughs> that word brings all sorts of anguish to their hearts because they don't know where home is. Is it where you started? Is it where you ended up? Is it somewhere in between? So, but what does the scriptures tell us about home? In John chapter 14, what does Christ tell his disciples? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may also be. Home is not a place. It is a place. But home is where Christ is. It's centered around the person of Christ. Suddenly it's redeemed. This concept of home, it's not this thing that's insufferably, it's, it's not lost for eternity. Rather, it's cemented in the person of who Christ is. Where is home? Where Jesus is. And he is with me. He transforms the concept of home. And if you look through Matthew, I mean, in Matthew 1, you have a mother who is afraid, and yet you have God with us, a mother who's pregnant, out of wedlock. You have a dad who's afraid of the future, God with us. Here you have people who are displaced from their homes, God with us. And the reality is, big or small, whether it's the experience of six million people or the experience of a little boy or a little girl struggling learning how to read uh, or struggling with learning, God's word teaches us who God is, it's God with us, and how we should live. We should trust that Christ understands our suffering, he is with us, and he walks with us, and he redeems these experiences. We may not see it in our lifetime, but he does redeem these experiences. So I want to end by reading 
from the Westminster Confession of Faith, just section 8. Because I think it really encourages us to ponder and to think uh, in this season. This is what it says. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. And then it goes on in section 8 to say, to all those for whom Christ has purchased redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing to them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation and effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and to obey, governing their hearts by his word and his spirit. And I pray that that would be the case for Colombians, but that would also be the case for us, that as we examine scripture, we would see a Christ who truly understands who we are. He understands our stage right now, and he has redeemed us. So I'm going to pray, and after we pray, we're going to sing a song, uh, and I'm telling you this because uh, in the bulletin, there's one of the uh, it, it doesn't have one of the verses, but I asked them to put it on the slides uh, so that we could see the second verse. Uh, but to kind of ponder the, the, and that we would rest in this truth, that true God, light of light, came and become, became a man for us. And I'd encourage you, the Advent season is almost over. Technically, it goes through Epiphany, right? Uh, but take some more time to ponder and to think about who this Christ is how this Christ remains God and yet walks with us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that even in our sin and even in our suffering, you became a human for us and you walked with us that we might walk with you. Thank you that you understand how we feel when we pray. You understand our weakness, and yet you love us all the same. And I pray, whether it's the people in this congregation or whether it's the people in congregations of the Colombian pastors, that you would show us as your church how to rest in you and to look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.